0: Look, Good morning, uh we're gonna be in Hosea Chapter Six to answer your question, Sandy. um and we're gonna be talking today about the Millennium Sum, but we're gonna be especially talking about the resurrection since Easter is coming up, and Easter is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. so in Hosea chapter Six, you turn with me in your Bibles there, we're gonna read verses one through three, and we're gonna talk today about a number of things that come to mind whenever we do prayer time. I'm looking at our prayer requests here, and we have a lot of people that we're thinking about that are battling illnesses and just battling the state of affairs that currently exists in the world as it's under corruption, as it's fallen. And so today, to encourage us and also to motivate us, I have come up with some basic points based on Hosea chapter six. Now, if you look up here at the slide, uh, it's very technical looking. Okay. So when I prepared the slide, I was really wanting to get into some different views and uh, get into the original language some. And I still might do that a little bit, but I do want to make sure that everything is something I've been convicted about. I want everything that I ever teach or preach to be practical. And I, I found I find that as I'm reading books, I get annoyed when someone dwells in the technical for too long, and I know that I've been prone to do that in the past. So I'm going to try to do a little bit better to make sure that even when we're talking about a super dense topic theologically, that we make sure that it has a sermon feel to it where we can get encouragement from it and get application. So uh, the title of this message, which isn't on the slide, uh, but it's called Our Resurrection of Ages, Our Destiny and Our Calling, and today we're going to talk about the God of the ages, his long term plan. We're going to talk about our destiny as it pertains to the resurrection and also our calling, because we have a destiny. We have certain things we look forward to, but we also have a calling in the here and the now. So in Hosea chapter six, let's read and then we'll talk uh, a little bit more about that big word you see up there on the slide, septimillennialism. Uh, I didn't know what this was until a few years ago, and it's a fascinating study, Uh, but we'll get to that in just a second. Let's read God's word. Hosea chapter six, verse one. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Now, a lot of the ideas and observations that I'm about to share with you are really uh, well summarized, I think, by John Gill's commentary. Um, Sometimes John Gill will over spiritualize passages, but on this particular text, he does a really good job of explaining Hosea six and the millennium. Yes, Christine. I just want to make a about sure. The yes. It doesn't say anything about days at all. And it also doesn't say anything about the latter. Okay. Um, well, no, I'm just saying, no, yeah, I, I, I've noticed as I've taught at the CLC, I do memory verses every week <clears throat> and, uh, I, we let the students pick which translation they want. You know, I generally teach from the KJV, but I let them pick their own translation. And, if I have a class, let's say the majority of them use the NIV, when we practice our verse every day, I'll use their like the most common version. So as we've been doing the NIV, I've noticed that certain words are just gone, like not and it's not a textual thing. It's just they thought that it wasn't necessary in conveying the meaning. They thought it wasn't necessary to bring that word from the original into the English. So that's where, you know, you start, in my opinion, to, to verge on error, if not committed altogether, whenever you start seeing words in the original language and just not bringing them into English because the whole point of a translation for people who don't know the original language is to have it in theirs, right? So it's got to be brought from one to the other. If you don't bring it over, well, then you're not translating. So anyways, uh, I didn't check the NLT before doing this study, but uh, that doesn't surprise me because again, the NLT is a little bit more dynamic. Yeah. And and honestly, the NLT uh, in the NLT uh, often is a good translation it's just it's kind of like you know a broken clock is right twice a day that sort of thing <laughs> you know you you are right sometimes okay good that's a great way of conveying it maybe even an insightful way of conveying it but in general we should stick to literal it's word like for word there you go i like that analogy very good stuff so anyways uh <laughs> let's move on now uh let's look at The days here, it says after two days, he will revive us. And in the third day, he will raise us up. Now we have two observations here that are completely unavoidable. One, it's talking about raising somebody up and living in his sight. So this is resurrection language. I don't think anybody would deny that. Two, it mentions two days being dead and then the third day being raised up. So we have a reference not just to resurrection generally, but to resurrection and three days. Now, we know that Jesus, he died, and this is controversial to some people. I think this is nitpicking, honestly, but this is, as I've studied scripture, what I've concluded, that Jesus died on a Thursday. I think the best evidence is that Thursday was when they were sacrificing the Pascal lamb in the temple, the Passover lamb, and Jesus gave up the ghost before sundown on Thursday, okay? Then you have Friday that he's in the grave. You have Saturday that he's in the grave, and then after those two intervening days between. Thursday and Sunday, Jesus rose on Sunday on the third day. So I think that, yes, exactly. So you get not only the three days, according to Jewish reckoning of time, but you get the three nights too. um, some people have him die on Wednesday, but I think that's just too much. And it's a stretch in my mind, the way they, they come about, you know, concluding that. But anyways, I don't want to get into that, but the point is we have, in my opinion, any Christian to read this is going to think that these days are in some way, a reference to Christ's resurrection. Now in the context we're definitely talking about Israel, okay? Because Israel has sinned. Jesus didn't sin. He bore the sin of the world, correct, on the cross. He became sin first. But uh, this is talking about the actual sin of Israel and Judah, not just Judah, but Israel and Judah. If you read chapter five, it talks about how Judah followed in the pattern of sin that was given by Israel. So Israel apostatized first, the Northern kingdom, the Southern kingdom went in the same uh, same pattern of sin. And so God is going to bring them both back, but not until they repent. And it mentions in verse 15 of the last chapter, I will go, God's speaking here. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. Okay. So God is going to bring back his people. And this is talking about a final restoration. We know that because it says in verse two, we shall live in his sight. And, uh, most commentators would take this to refer to the coming of the Messiah, setting up his kingdom, and he shall once again dwell in the midst of the people and they shall dwell in his sight. So this is referring to the golden age we know as the millennium. Now, what's really interesting about this subject is it ties into a broader idea that when you're reading about, you may or may not come across Hosea 6. But I think Hosea 6 is probably the best evidence for it. So I'm going to introduce you to that today. So first, let's uh, talk about this term septa millennialism. It's also called sexta millennialism. It just depends on how you look at it. Some call it sexta millennialism because sexta is six. And so they would say there's going to be six millenniums and then a seventh. I don't know if he would uh, uh, prescribe to this um, or not. I'm not sure. So I can't say if Clarence Larkin believed this, but there's a good chance that he might have. Um, I do know that. At at this time, uh, in history, when I say this time, like when prophecy came back in the late 1800s, there were some people who were throwing these ideas out here. But I will say this is not mainstream premillennial belief. Okay, so people like Thomas Ice, uh, Tim LaHaye, I think that they might not have jumped on board with this. Uh, Tim LaHaye's with the Lord, of course, but Thomas Ice, I know he's written specific articles against this view, and his chief argument uh, has to do with chronology. So what exactly is the view before we get into all that stuff? Uh, Well, the view says that for 6,000 years, human history will will go on under corruption. So there's a fall that's going to take place. After the fall, you got 6,000 years. That's work. It's striving. It's not rest. And then at the end of that work, Jesus comes back. He sets up a millennial reign. That will be a Sabbath rest. So this is patterned after the six days of creation followed by Sabbath. Now, the people who held this view were young earth creationists, so let me clarify. They did not believe, okay, that when you read the days of creation in Genesis 1, that they literally mean ages. They believed that this was a type. Now, there's a difference between a type and what these old earth creationists might say. They would say a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, so they'd say, well, maybe these days are ages. No one in the early church understood it that way. They believe that as you often find in the writings of the prophets, like Ezekiel, he's told to lie on his side, okay, for so many days, okay, it's like 360 on one and 40 on the other, but lay on your side. When he does that, when God says lay on your side for this many days, are they literal days? Yes. He literally tells them to lay on his side for those days, but he interprets it for him and says these days represent what? Years. So in prophetic writing, sometimes a day, though it's literally referred to as a day and it is a literal day, uh, it can mean more. In the grand scheme of things. And so the early Jewish interpreters, as well as early Christians, they believe that the six days of creation are a type of the work of the human race. Like we, we work for 6,000 years. We are waiting for our rest day. We're waiting for our Sabbath day. And uh, that Sabbath day will happen with a final seventh millennium. And that's where you get the term sexta and septa from. Uh, now is there any support for this? Well, like I said, it was a very widespread view. In fact, if you were to go back and you were to talk to premillennialists like way back in the day when they first really started talking about this and and hashing it out, septimillennialism was premillennialism. Okay, I mean, when you read their writings, it they're basically one and the same. Most premillennialists that you read, uh perhaps all of them, okay, that would be a big statement, but most of them that I've read, they combine a belief in a literal millennium with These other millenniums that are going to come to pass too. So there will be a literal thousand year reign of Christ, but it's going to happen after 6,000 years. How far back are we going? Well, uh, this would be like Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple is when the Second Temple was still standing until 70 AD when it was destroyed. So sources that go back to the Second Temple. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's basically been stated by even Jewish authorities. Like if you read the Jewish encyclopedia, it's from a Jewish perspective, not a Christian one, but they mentioned that this belief in a millennium was probably rooted in Orthodox Jewish belief. So the idea of a millennium wasn't something new to them. Uh, of course we haven't confirmed for us in the new Testament, right? The, the authority of God's word speaks there, but, um, the, the Talmud, which contains a lot of early traditions. It was written later after the temple was destroyed. However, a lot of these rabbis that are quoted go back to an earlier time period. So the Talmud with its Jewish traditions, the Midrash are commentaries by rabbis based on the Old Testament. And of course, the Zohar came much later, but uh, it also includes some early uh, second temple beliefs. And the Zohar is a mystical Judaism. But the point is, whether they're a Talmudic rabbi or a Kabbalic, Rabbi, which would be the Zohar. It doesn't really matter. The point is they're Jewish rabbis. They're not Christians. And there's this common prevailing belief that six thousand years of history will transpire before the seventh millennium. Um, you also have, and I'll skip down to the bottom there, the Antinus Nicene Church. Um it's a mouthful. Nicene means before the uh council of Nicaea. It happened in three twenty five. It's where they got together and they basically said, like, we've always been taught that Jesus is God. It's what the word of God teaches. So this guy Arius over here, who is basically like the first, you know, Jehovah's witness, you could say, who was saying Jesus was created by God. They said, no, he's wrong. So they use that counsel since it's so important as like a, a dividing point in history. So the Antonicene fathers, the ones that come before them, they also follow this trend of believing in uh, a millennium that would follow 6,000 years. And one of them is called Barnabas. Uh, some tradition says that this is the Barnabas of the new Testament. It's probably not. As far as we know, it was written later, probably after Barnabas died. Um, so this is another Barnabas. Barnabas is a pretty common name, just like a lot of the names of the new Testament are. So there's a guy named Barnabas and, uh, in his writings, uh, which make reference to Peter's letters and the book of Hebrews. Um, he mentions this theory that there'd be six thousand years followed by seventh millennium. So he's premillennial, and he also refers to other things. It's insightful to read his letter because whenever you get to Genesis one twenty six, and you know, for me as a kid, for the first time reading Genesis one twenty six, and it said, "Let us make man in our image." I'm like, "Let's the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit." Well, Barnabas is one of those early writers that used that text, you know, to argue that this is the Trinity in the Old Testament. So there are really interesting stuff in the book. I don't agree with all of it, uh, but it's got some real insightful stuff. So anyways, the point that I'm trying to make is it appears the Jews and early Christians believed this idea. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not it's true unless we look at the Bible, because the Bibles are standard. Now, one way to surely falsify this, okay, to, to disprove this theory would be to know how long creation has been going on. Like, so how far are we from the beginning of creation? If we've already got past year 6,000, this theory is wrong. It's that simple. Now the Bible does not explicitly teach it. So I do want to say that if you're listening to this and you don't agree with me, that's fine. You can be a premillennialist and not believe this theory. However, it is almost certain in my mind that we have not reached year 6,000 yet. The The Um, year for the Jewish calendar is is 5,000 something. Okay. So anno mundi from the year of the creation of the world—that's how they date their calendar—and they're not at year six thousand yet. However, their calendar's off because of Christianity. To be honest with you, uh, the calendar was changed in reaction to Christians using. Uh, okay, so they're 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 off by a bit, uh, by at least a hundred years. So, but even then, it would fall short of year six thousand. And so the point is, we haven't reached it yet. We don't know exactly when your six thousand is, but I think there's good reason to associate it with Christ and his return. So let's look at some passages, and I'm gonna get y'all involved in this so that way I'm not just reading everything. Uh somebody turn to first Peter one, eighteen through nineteen. All right, so somebody get that passage. The reference is up there, and then somebody get second Peter three, eight through nine. So who wants to get the first one? I'll do second Peter. Okay, so. Sandy's doing second Peter and Katie's going to do first Peter one, 18 through 19. Now we're going to have these read, and then we're going to see how they compare to one another. Good. We keep reading a little bit more. good. I must have typed down the reference on because that's the one that I wanted. But what it says is he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but he's revealed now. Now, what is this referring to? It's referring to the the practice of choosing the Passover lamb before it is brought out for sacrifice. So uh, there was this tradition that they would pick the lamb in Bethel and that they would on Palm Sunday, what we know to be Palm Sunday, that same day, they would bring that Passover lamb into Jerusalem. There would be a procession. People would be gathered there. Interestingly enough, this is on the exact same day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Okay, so you could say that's a coincidence, but I I highly doubt it, okay? So, uh, and Jesus came during the Passover because he's fulfilling it. So the Passover lamb was chosen, okay? this This is really cool. Four days before the Passover lamb was killed. So if it's chosen on Sunday, then you got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's why I think Jesus died on a Thursday. But the point is, four days prior to the lamb being revealed for sacrifice, it was already chosen by the priests. Now, what's kind of interesting is when you combine Hosea 6 with that idea, you come up with 6,000 years. Think about it. Okay, so you have two days of Israel being smitten, of Israel being, you know, dead. In a sense, and then Israel is revived and resurrected. Okay, so you have two days, and then followed by the third day, and then when you go to First Peter, you have the four days that transpire between the Lamb being chosen and the Lamb being revealed. So, what when you take these and you put them together, you get this idea that Jesus probably appeared for sacrifice four thousand years after the beginning of creation. OK, and so 2000 years from the time of Christ to now has almost been completed. OK, and then following that would be the final seventh millennium. So when you take all this data and I hope you're following, if you're listening, but if you take all this data and you synthesize it together, it seems like you have a proof for a couple things. One, you have a proof for a young creation. All of this assumes young earth creationism. So it shows how multiple doctrines kind of tie into one another. All right. But on top of that, you have this idea that Israel started this this time of dispersion, that this being smitten of God when around the same time that the Messiah came. okay, Jesus came. So you have this prophecy that the Messiah comes. We know the Messiah will be rejected in Isaiah 53. Okay, Jesus is smitten for their sins, but because they refuse to repent and accept him, they are then disciplined. Okay, they're not cast off entirely, but they're at a fellowship with God for how long? Two days. And then after that, the Messiah, he comes back. Okay, this would be the second coming, though the Jews don't acknowledge that they don't believe he's come at all. But he comes back and then he sets up the millennial reign. That coming back of Christ will coincide with Israel being resurrected. So they've been smitten. They've been disciplined for the past 2000 years and they'll come back. So again, we don't know exactly. I'm not going to set dates because there's debate on it. Like exactly when did Jesus come? You'll have different scholars say 30 AD is when he died. 32 AD, 33 AD. You go from 30 to 33 AD. It's somewhere in there, but we don't know exactly when. Okay. And when you, when you calculate 2000 years, you have to understand it's not our calendar. It's the Jewish calendar. Okay, and the question is, all right, well, is it when Christ died that they began to be smitten or was it 40 years later whenever the temple was destroyed? Was that the last straw? So, yeah, so we have so we have some dates that are impossible to pin down. And I think that that is exactly what God wants us to know, that we can't know exactly when he returns. No one knows the day or the hour. And I firmly believe that we don't know the year either. Okay, so I'm not trying to set dates. And I think that's why Thomas Ice, when he wrote on this subject, he was like, we got to be careful that we're not violating what scripture says. I don't think you could set dates here. I think that we can only say we're super close. And when we take all these other signs that we've already been talking about of the terminal generation, they go together very well with 2000 years coming to an end since the time of Christ and the millennium starting. So I think we're very close to it. But having said all of that, the second Peter three, eight through nine, Sandy, will you read that for us? Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Good. So this analogy, thousand years is as a day, a day is a thousand years. It is in the same context of what? The return of Christ. Okay, so. A lot of people may say I'm reading too much into this, and I'm not dogmatic about it, okay? Because yes, there there are some unanswered questions. However, let's consider this, okay? Um, when you compare First Peter one with its talk of the Lamb being chosen and then the Lamb being revealed in our time, Peter says, and then you look right here, and we're talking about the second coming, and a thousand years is like a day. And then we know that in Peter's day, people were already talking this way. Peter did not originate the idea, but his idea sounds very similar to their idea. Okay. When you start adding that together with Hosea chapter six, you start to get a clearer picture. Now I'm not the only one who's seen this. I actually read, and this is where I discovered it years back. There was a scholar and this guy wasn't just, you know, Putting up a blog post, okay. A Bible scholar, and he was writing a commentator or commentary. Sorry, <laughs> uh, on Second Peter, okay. And it may have actually been a combined commentary of First and Second Peter. But I was reading what he had to say here, and he got into the nitty gritty of the difference between the Hebrew text, which is known as the Masoretic text, and the LXX, which is called the Septuagint. So you have the Greek version of Genesis with its dates, and then you have the Hebrew version. Now the Hebrew version and the Greek version are very different from each other. There's a uh, like over a thousand years difference. So what this person pointed out in his discussion was that Peter seems to agree with the Hebrew text here. The reason that he said that is because this this idea of of Christ appearing after four, thousand years of history, the land being revealed, that only fits with the Hebrew and not the Greek. So this is a very technical topic. You can really get lost in it, to be honest with you. But uh, it's something that people have been saying for a long time. So this is not nothing newfangled. All right. The rabbis talked about it. Early Christians talked about it. And there are still some scholars today that believe that, you know, it's a supportable view. But to me, Hosea 6 is probably the best evidence for it. However, I do want to talk how uh, Hosea 6 is practical for us. And this is what's probably most important. Even if Jesus doesn't come back exactly 2,000 years after he came in his incarnation, even if he takes longer than that to come, we still know it's a sure thing that he's coming back. Okay. I do believe that he's probably going to come back around 2,000 years after his first coming. But if I'm wrong, I can still learn so much from this passage. So what are the points for this morning's sermon? One, this age of death that we live in is going to come to an end. And it pertains to a lot of things. The Jews right now are are experiencing what you would call a fellowship kind of death. Now, they haven't been cast off by God. They're God's people. They were unconditionally chosen. But they're not experiencing the blessings that come with a relationship with God. There were times in their history where they had that. Now they don't. They're experiencing discipline. They're in dispersion. We're seeing evidence of that coming back, of being returned. And the age of death as it pertains to the Jews will come to a close whenever Jesus comes back uh they will have repented during the tribulation period and they will be resurrected as a people the next point that i want to make is all of this ties into the resurrection of jesus because of christ the age of death will be conquered i read i read a commentary guys that i've recommended on this podcast many times i looked at it this morning just to see what this person had to say they're premillennial they're literal bible interpreters i was curious thomas constable i looked up his commentary and he said which shocked me it was completely coincidence that there are two days mentioned here. And then a third day, it's complete coincidence. It has nothing to do with the resurrection of Jesus. And I was just shocked because I don't see how anybody can, as a Christian, believe in the new Testament and what it says about the days that Christ was in the grave and then rose again. How can you read Hosea six and not see it? I mean, it's literally resurrection language we're talking about here and the ground, the foundation behind the resurrection of Israel one day is the resurrection of Jesus. Think about it, guys. It was promised to Abraham that they would be reigning in a special chosen land. Why were they given this promise? It was a picture, obviously, of God's unconditional love for the church. It was a picture of how God will reward those who follow him faithfully, just as the Jews will rule, will be rewarded in the millennium and they will reign over the other nations. It's a picture of a lot of things. Um, But ultimately, the reason all this is going to happen is God is keeping a promise to a believer named Abraham. And the reason that God is able to keep this promise or any promise to us is because of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. The only reason we have an age of life and victory to look forward to is because of Christ. And that's why here, even Israel's restoration, it has to be tied into Jesus Every blessing that God gives to mankind, he can only give it because Jesus has removed the separation between us and him, between us and God. Uh, Also, this pertains obviously to the church. We think about uh, the age of death coming to a close. When we read 1 Corinthians 15, it says only then will death be swallowed up and we'll have victory. So right now, while we have spiritual life, we have eternal life. Our bodies are experiencing pain. Uh, Our bodies experience decay. We're mortal and we struggle with the flesh. Like our, our bodies somehow are the seat of a sin nature passed down from our ancestor Adam. And so we're in that death physically. And that will be reversed whenever Christ returns. So we have to remind ourselves of that every single day, that this resurrection that we will one day experience is something that hasn't already happened in its entirety. And a lot of people will think that they'll think that, oh, we've got everything that was promised. You have the preterist movement, which I've talked about a little bit as I've gone through this end time study. They believe, oh, Jesus, when he promised that he was going to come back, all those promises of his return, he's already done that. That was talking about 70 AD. Okay, if that's true, guys, then we can't look forward to an age of life to come. No No blessed hope. They've eradicated it and they've done it in the name of Bible interpretation, ironically when the plain sense of scripture disallows it. And so we have to remind ourselves of the resurrection daily and defend it whenever we see ideas like that pop up. But uh, another thing to consider is that all has been planned out by a sovereign God. When I study this stuff about the days of creation being a type of history, it, it reminds me that everything's been planned out. Now, I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't believe that my actions have been planned out in a direct sense. However, even though God gives me freedom and I have choices to make, God can still use that choice, even if it's an obstinate one of rebellion, he can incorporate that into his plan. So there is a sense in which, yes, everything is controlled, but not logically. Okay, according to like a logical priority, it starts with God gives us a free will. He gives us a choice to make. However, when it comes down to it, nothing will thwart God's plan and God can take sin just like the brothers of Joseph casting him into that pit. He can take that sin, which he did not determine, but he can use it in his foreknowledge to bring about a result that he wishes. And that result was to bring Joseph to Egypt to save his family. And so God can even use sin while not causing it, while not determining it. And so Hebrews chapter one, when it talks about Jesus, it says that he made the ages in the uh, King James, it says the worlds. And if you look at the original language, it means the ages in which our world that we live in this physical world the ages that it passes through. So it's not just talking about the creation of matter, like the stuff that we feel and we can see, but it's talking about time itself is made by God. So nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing throws him through a loop. And that's definitely a comforting idea. Lastly, though, some of this plan, though it's all been planned out, some of this plan has been revealed and we've been talking about it today. Some of it's a little speculative, like septimillennialism. Other stuff is not speculative. The premillennial view is the biblical view. It's based on our literal interpretation of scripture. So this has been revealed to us for what? Not just for comfort. It is for comfort. I've been saying that this whole time, but it's also for a challenge. When we think about resurrection, we often don't think about two other things, and this is where we'll wrap it up. First, we don't really think about overcoming sin. Sin. And we don't tie in resurrection to that as much. When we think about resurrection, we think of Jesus paid for our sins. Yes, we've overcome in that sense. We think of our resurrection one day, which we will experience when he comes back. But we fail to realize that resurrection power is a theme constantly talked about in the New Testament. And you can experience that resurrection power through the Holy Spirit now. So what will that mean for us? I'm going to read you or read for you uh, in Philippians Chapter 311, this is a really cool verse um, that, again, the original language just brings out insights. It says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, Paul is talking about this resurrection of the dead as if it's something that he's trying to get. He goes on and he says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I might apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ. And he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the what? The mark for the prize of the high calling calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he, when he's talking about this resurrection of the dead that he's running for, he speaks of it as a prize. Now, how can he speak of the resurrection as a prize? Well, of course, we have to properly interpret scripture here. Resurrection is a free gift. It comes automatically when you receive the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans 8 says this. He says, if you've received the Holy Spirit, it's guaranteed that he will transform your mortal body one day. However, we also see this idea in the New Testament of how life that Christ gives, this eternal supernatural life, the life of God in heaven that we receive when we get saved. It's not just life. It's life abundant. It's something that we can have a a more enriched experience of. And this doesn't just pertain to now. It does now but it also pertains to the future. So if you look at the, the Greek, when it says I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, it's actually literally the out resurrection from out of the dead. So when you take this together, it's kind of awkward. It seems redundant. Unless you take it literally, he's saying there will be a resurrection experience one day. All Christians have that resurrection experience for free. Everybody's going to get a glorified body. Everybody has a claim to that life through faith in Jesus. However, there's an out resurrection of the dead. And that's what he's talking about because I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. He says, I've not just been saved, but I've been called. I have a destiny which is free. I'm going to be resurrected. Praise God for that. But I've also been brought into the family of God to be what? A priest and to represent Jesus Christ in this world. And I have not yet apprehended that prize because I don't know what I will do the next day or the day after that till the day I die. He's like, I'm running a race. And right now I'm dead set on going to the end. And if I make it to the end in terms of persevering in my faith, honoring God in my life, fulfilling this calling that he has given to me, I know that I will receive that special resurrection experience, a reward. It talks about the crown of life. You ever consider that? It's a crown, so it's a reward, but it's the crown of what? The crown of life. Everybody gets life. Everybody's going to be clothed in the robes of Jesus' righteousness if they believed in Jesus. But there's a special reward for those who persevere. That's something we think about. We should think about when we consider the resurrection of Jesus. And lastly, this is what we'll end with for carnal believers. So for, and guys, we are all carnal to some extent. Okay. Now, often in scripture, when it talks about carnal believers, it's saying their life in general, like their lifestyle is fleshly. They look like unbelievers. I'm hoping that my life is not like that, that people could say in general, Buddy looks like an unbeliever. Hopefully not, but I I will say this much and Katie. My wife would agree with this when I get grumpy and I let my stress take my eyes off of God and what matters. Okay. I look carnal at that time. When, When I lose my temper, I'm being carnal. Now that may not be the general experience of my life. Okay. But when that happens, that is carnal behavior. And Paul tells us what happens if that carnal behavior becomes the rule rather than the exception. He says in Romans 8, 13, for if you live after the flesh, live, that means constantly doing it. Okay. It's not just a every now and then thing. If you live after the flesh and he's talking to who believers, ye shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify or put to death, the deeds of the body, you shall what live now here, he's not calling into question their salvation. He's not saying there's any threat of eternal death. He's saying that you live in a world surrounded by death. You still have a fleshly nature, which he calls mortal. It's a body of death is what he calls it in the same chapter. If you give way to the flesh, if you give way to the sin nature, what will be your experience? Death. It won't be eternal death, but it could go to physical death. There are places in the Bible where people were taken out of the world sooner uh, rather than later, like Ananias and Sapphira. But even putting aside physical death, which seems pretty drastic and it doesn't happen Apparently a lot as we're reading scripture, but it does occasionally. Um, Death can be an experience, guys, not an event that happens at a moment. Um, Have you all ever experienced deep depression, deep shame, misery? That is death. It's a death experience. Now, some of that's not attributable to our sin. It's just because we live in this fallen world and God tests our faith. He refines it so we will overcome and one day receive the fullest experience that we can. One day when the rapture happens, but other experiences of death are our fault. It's because we're giving way to our sin nature rather than living according to the spirit that we have. Now, of course, um, uh, you know, that's easier said than done. That's why God gives us a whole book, 66 books. In fact, they give us instructions on how we can put the death, the flesh, so we can live, uh, for the Lord and experience that resurrection life. But, uh, that means that not only do we have a comfort in the resurrection, but we have a challenge. And that's my challenge to y'all. It's my challenge to myself. Think about the resurrection, especially as we approach the season of Easter. Think about what you have. Think about what Israel one day will have whenever they're revived and, and be excited about that because that means we're getting close. All right. We're already seeing fruit of you know repentance among the Messianic Jewish movement. But uh, when it comes to us and our relationship with God individually, uh, be comforted and be challenged by the resurrection of Jesus. And with that, Uh, we're going to close, um, have a wonderful day. God bless.